Hi, this is Pastor Andrew here at Oak Ridge Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can check us out online at www.orbcnet.com. Or better yet, come by and visit us at the corner of Wurzbach and Vance Jackson in Northwest San Antonio. As a family with our children. Um, let me pray before I start. Dear Lord, God, I ask that my preaching would not be in the attractive words of men's wisdom, but that everything that I would say would be from you, that the power of God would pervade everything that I say. Lord, if there are things that I'm about to say that I shouldn't say, stop my mouth. And if there are things that I forget, Lord, I ask that you would spur my heart to remember them. Mostly, Lord, I ask that you would be with the people here, that you would prick their hearts, engage their minds, and that they would leave this place changed. And Lord, I ask these things in your holy name. Amen. Well, we've come to a very interesting part of the book of Acts this morning. We have watched as the gospel has moved out from a very few group of people, uh, several hundred people in Jerusalem, We've watched as God poured his Holy Spirit out on the Jews at Pentecost, how there was this amazing growth within the church. Um, as many people came to Christ and as many people's lives were changed, uh, we, we saw as the church came together, they lived in harmony, um, owning things together and, and taking care of one another. And then we watched as the forces of persecution came down, scattered the church. And now we have kind of focused on one of the areas that the gospel has moved out of. Right? Last week we were introduced to the man Philip, Philip the Evangelist, one of those 12 deacons that were established in the book of Acts. A man who has gone out from Jerusalem, a man who's been driven from his home, and has used that opportunity to take the gospel to a group of people that were hated and despised by the Jews. Just him going to Samaria is a victory for the gospel. And yet we're going to begin to see today what that victory looks like. We're going to begin to see how the gospel is unfolded in a culture that is different ever so slightly from the culture in Jerusalem. And we're going to begin to see that that difference is going to introduce some problems. We're going to see how those problems were solved we read that Philip came in and that the people responded to him, that there's this amazing moment, this movement of the Holy Spirit there. Philip is going around, he's healing people, and he is casting demons out, and lame people are able to walk, and all of the signs that accompanied Christ's ministry, really Philip has taken part of. And I want you to think about how cool that must have been, right? We are used to, in our kind of anti-supernaturalist modern era that we live in, to not expecting miracles. We, we, we don't know what would happen if we even saw one. And, and, but to think about what it would be like to have, be so filled with the Holy Spirit that when you went to the bedside of a sick person and you prayed for them that they got better. M many of you know that we have been going through a season of sickness here at the church. We have been praying over people. We have gone into the hospitals and we have anointed people. And we have seen people get sick and we have seen people die. But to be part of a movement where God 
heals the sick in miraculous ways. To watch as hundreds and thousands of people come to Christ. That must have been mind-blowing. And yet into the midst of this amazing moment, we begin to see some problems arise. In verse 9 we read now, For some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. That's kind of odd for us to hear in our modern era. The, the concept of magic is something that we relegate to children's books. Right? We, if we read the Chronicles of Narnia, there's, there's magic there. If, there, if we read uh, the, the Lord of the Rings, there's some magic there. Right? And we're used to seeing this as kind of a kid's thing, as something from a fantasy. Truth be told, in our modern era, we look at magic as kind of the foolishness of a bygone past. If we think of magic at all, we kind of think of it as, uh, as a, a, a kind of trickery that somebody pulls on somebody else. If you think about a magician, what does a magician do? Well, they, they use sleight of hand or special tools or interesting technology to make you think that they did something supernatural. But at the base of all of it is illusion and misdirection. Right? In, a, in an even larger sense, when we think of magic, we think of technology that is so far advanced that it looks almost supernatural. This is, uh, if anybody here is a fan of science fiction and has ever heard of Arthur C. Clarke, you'll know that he has his three laws, and one of these laws is any technology sufficiently advanced will appear to be like magic. The best example of this is Hernando Cortez coming in among the Aztecs. And he was so far outside of what they had experienced when he rode up on his horse in his armor with his guns that they couldn't even process it. They thought he was a god. And Hernando Cortez, in true European fashion, true capitalist fashion, parlayed that godhead into all of the riches of the Aztec Empire. That's what we think of when we think of magic. We do that because deep down all of us are materialists. We believe that the world is that which we can see and touch. And yet that is not the worldview that we see in Scripture. Brothers and sisters, I want you to understand this. Scripture clearly teaches that there are such a thing as demons. That there is such a thing as the supernatural. We, we see throughout the Old Testament, and indeed even more so in the New Testament, that the disciples, as they are going out and doing the things that God has told them to do, that they come into contact with that which is otherworldly. So much so that Paul will tell his hearers, we do not wage war against flesh and blood. This is a man who's being actively persecuted by the ruling world power. Right? People with swords and, and cavalry and javelins. And he's saying, we're not making war against them. We're making war against the powers, against the principalities, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realm. 
The New Testament is permeated with this idea of spiritual warfare. And never more so as in this time where the disciples come into contact with Simon the Magician. Simon the Magician is an enigmatic character in Christian history. We, there's actually a lot that has been written about him. In the book of Acts, we see him in the city of Samaria. And he, we're not really sure exactly what he's been doing, but we know that he's been working great works of power. Now, these are not illusions. This man is not a charlatan. He probably was doing amazing things. So amazing that the people in Samaria called him the power of God. Literally, they see him as God incarnate. Okay? Now, the Samaritans are not the Jews. But they still are monotheists. And they still have this deeply held belief in the sanctity of God. And so for them to call Simon the Magician the power of God, he had to have been doing something spectacular. This is the first thing that we need to understand from this. Supernatural forces are real. But there's only two kinds. There is the supernatural forces that come from God that we see exerted as miracles. And then there's everything else. I talked to a man once, we sat down in my office and we were talking about him coming to Christ and, and I, I was talking to him about what his spiritual life was like. And, and things were going pretty good. He was like, oh yeah, I pray and, and I believe in God. And, and he said, oh, and I'm a, I'm a day walker. I was like, that's interesting. I'm going to pull on that thread, see what unravels. He's like, yeah, um, at night I, uh, I fight demons in my sleep. Now, when you're a pastor and you hear that, you kind of, it's like the, the record skips. You're like, okay, let's, let's tease that out a little bit. What do you mean by that? He said, well, you know, angels come to me at night, and I go out and I fight demons, and they tell me things. All right, solid. And as we talked over time, we realized that there was a tremendous amount of occult stuff that was going on in this guy's life. His wife was really involved in voodoo. He had a lot of weird things that were going on in his life. And the ultimate response, the ultimate thing that we saw was that this man was listening to spiritual forces that were telling him things that were not true. This is why Paul says, test every spirit. Right? We live in a supernatural environment. We believe that a supernatural God sent his supernatural son to supernaturally be incarnate in the, in the womb of a virgin, that he was supernaturally born and indwelt by the Holy Spirit and did supernatural miracles and then died and was raised supernaturally from the grave. Right? We believe in the supernatural. And we understand that we are in conflict with forces other than God. And so all the people, high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is the divine power known as the great power. They had followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. He had been doing signs and wonders like Philip had been doing. And they found them very persuasive. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And so we, we see 
Philip stepping into this very charged supernatural environment. And we see something amazing happen. The Samaritans, the lost tribes of Israel, the men and women who had been estranged from God's people for so long, have come to a place where they believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And they have come to Christ because of the signs and the wonders that Philip has been doing. God has come into contact with the magic of this local sorcerer, and he has overcome him, as God always will. See, that's the next step in our understanding that, yes, there is supernatural. Yes, it does exist. But God is always in control. There is no weapon forged against us that can prevail. Greater is the power that is inside of us than the power that is in the world. All that the devil has in his contest with God to hurt us are lies and trickery. And so we, as we come into contact with the divine, understand what is from God and what is counterfeit. And the Philippians, who had been exposed to this powerful ministry of Simon the magician, came into contact with Philip and understood what true power was. And something amazing happens. They come to Christ. And Simon the magician professes belief. We read, Simon himself believed and was baptized and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and the miracles that he saw. It's amazing, right? Happy ending. Philip comes into town, battles with the devil, wins all the souls to Christ. Bingo, bango. Back to bed. Story over. Right? Everybody who's waiting to go watch football... We can stop right now, right? No. But wait, there's more. See, because the story doesn't end there. The story continues, and we begin to see some other amazing things happening. We read in verse 14 that when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. Now, what is happening here? Now, if you look at this, many people have kind of seen this in different ways. They've seen this as Peter and James not trusting Philip or Peter and James trying to co-opt Philip's ministry. I don't think we need to see it that way. To understand why they sent Paul, Peter and James to Samaria, we have to understand some backstory on the Samaritans. See, we all know that the Samaritans were the descendants, or most of us know that the Samaritans were the descendants of the northern tribes in Israel that had been sent off into captivity and intermixed with the people that had brought in. They were kind of hybrid, uh, like a, a group of people from all over that worshipped weirdly and sort of Jewish, but sort of not. But what we need to understand is that even before Israel was taken off into captivity, these northern tribes had attempted to create their own form of Judaism. Those of you who went through our first and second Kings Bible study last year, remember that after the, Samar after the, the Israel separated from Judah, they decided, the king decided that it was Really, really inconvenient to have his people go down to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. It gave the people in Judah power that he didn't want them to have. So he created his own special place to worship God. 
On Mount Gerizim, he created a high place for the worship of God. But then he was like, you know, as long as I'm redoing the temple, and I might as well make it better. We're going to make some changes to this. It's really hard to worship a God you can't see. And so he creates, that's right, a golden calf. Because it worked really good in the desert with the Israelites. We're going to try it again. We're going to put a golden calf on Mount Gerizim. And he's going to say, this is your God. Worship Yahweh here. And this started a long process where the people of Israel began to worship other gods and fall away from Yahweh. They created their own religion that looked sort of like Judaism. And sort of not. And so as Peter and as, as, Peter and as um, John head up there, what they're trying to do is make sure that the Samaritans are not creating another counterfeit version of Christianity. The idea is we are one church. Not separate churches, not separate groups. We're one church. And so the Jerusalem church went up there to try to figure out what was going on and understand how the Samaritans were being involved. Now, remember, Peter and John had been to Samaria with Christ. They had watched as Christ had spoken to the woman by the well. They had seen him heal Samaritan lepers. He, they'd heard him talk about the good Samaritan. They understood that part of the plan was to include these people back into a healed nation. And so we read that they came... When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. And when they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And here's where we get some really interesting things that are hard to understand. It says, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And so we have yet more weird things happening in Samaria. Somehow, the Samaritans had come to Christ, been baptized, and not received the Holy Spirit. Now, many people have looked at that and they have created an entire theology around this. There's a group of people that have created a theology that says that the Holy Spirit has to be dispensed after a second baptism in the Holy Spirit. We call those people Pentecostals. And they teach that there is a second outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But there's also another way to look at this. You can come all the way over here to the Roman Catholic side, where they say, no, 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 see, it's not enough to be baptized. You have to have somebody, an apostle, place their hands on you so you can receive the Holy Spirit. Right? And so from Pentecostals to Catholic, we have misunderstood what's happening here. The reality is, this is a one-time, one-off thing that happened. The clear picture in the book of Acts is that a person believes, receives the Holy Spirit, and is baptized. And that happens all in very quick succession. This kind of drawing out of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is one of those things that we see as a sign that something interesting is happening. That God is expanding His people to include another group. And so 
Peter and James come and they lay their hands on the Samaritans and the Holy Spirit descends on the Samaritans. We assume with the same kind of very visible, active way of knowing that the Holy Spirit is there. Like we saw to the, uh, to the church that the people spoke in tongues and probably had some kind of manifestation come down. We're not sure exactly what happened, but we are sure that something happened. Now, why did this happen? It was because God wanted to make a very, very clear picture of the Samaritans as being part of the people of God now. That they did not come to Christ on their own, as an island, as a separate people, that they were fully included into the people of God. That they were one with the people of God. That there was not multiple churches, but one church. And God did this as a symbol of that. Well, one thing was very, very clear. Simon saw this amazing thing happen, and it shook him. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone to whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. And now we begin to see the character of Simon the magician and the character of the conversion that he went through. See, Simon's a professional. He's a professional magician. He knows good tradecraft when he sees it. And like all good professionals, he wants to improve his skills. He wants to do a little professional education, maybe level up a little bit. And so he goes to Peter and he says, hey man, I saw what you did. That was awesome. And I want you to give that to me, but I understand one professional to another, right? That this kind of stuff doesn't come free. You've got needs. You've got stuff you've got to take care of. And so I know your time is valuable. So I want to compensate you for your time. You give me the mojo, and then I'll be able to go and do this. Now, why is he doing that? Well, obviously because he wants to sell the Holy Spirit. Right? He has been around Philip, a man who can do amazing things. He has seen amazing things happen, right? He has seen the Holy Spirit descend on the people in a real and powerful way. And now he has something even better than miracles. He has the ability to sell the ability to do miracles. Man, opportunities like that don't come up all the time. And so Stephen, kind of on the low low, goes over to Peter and says, Hey, what's it going to take for me to get this from you? Because he's Stephen does not fundamentally understand what the Holy Spirit is. Stephen still doesn't understand what the Holy Spirit is. To him, the Holy Spirit is magic. Not Stephen, Simon. What he said. Simon sees the Holy Spirit as magic. He sees it as a power from God to be controlled. Because, see, that's how people conceptualized magic back then. There were multiple gods 
And each one kind of did their own thing. And if you used the right words or the right incantations or the right words of power, then you could control this deity or that deity. You could get involved in their kind of internecine fights and manipulate them to do what you wanted them to do. So Stephen had picked out the deity that he was going to worship. It was Yahweh. And he wanted to be able to know the appropriate words to be able to say to manipulate that God into doing the things that he wanted to do. Makes total sense if you are an unconverted, lost magician who just came into contact with an apostle. The problem is that it is completely destructive to everything that Christianity stands for. Because it implies that you can mediate, that you can control God. That somehow you can buy the grace of God or control how the grace of God is poured out on people. That maybe perhaps salvation isn't by faith alone, through grace alone, to the glory of God alone. Perhaps it is tied to a series of works that you can do. This idea of works-based salvation is going to come back over and over and over again. It is the great pernicious lie that will haunt the early church. Because salvation by faith through grace is completely alien to everything we understand as human beings. And Stephen doesn't understand it. Simon doesn't understand it because Simon isn't saved. So how does Peter react to this? Well, he, inter- he reacts to this by immediately and dramatically confronting the error that he finds in Simon. Peter answered him, may your money perish with you. Now when we read that, may your money perish with you, that's not actually what it says in the Greek. The Greek is far more forceful. It's basically him saying, to hell with your money. Peter didn't mince words. Peter was a man of action. He said, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. And then he goes on to say, you have no part or share in this ministry. Now that's also a very important thing to say. Part and share in this ministry is indicative of how you would describe somebody that was a member of the kingdom of God. So if you were talking about the Jews in the Old Testament, they would have a part and a share in the inheritance of God and his people. He's saying, you have no part and you have no share in this ministry. And the word that he uses for ministry is logos. He says, you have no part or share in the logos of God, God's wisdom, the word of God, which is Christ. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Saying the only way that you could think this is if you were still enslaved to sin. And so he does what all good Christian leaders do when they come into contact with bad doctrine. He calls the person to repentance. He says, brother, you are not where you need to be. You need to turn and you need to be healed. Now, what's the result of this? We read 
Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Now on the surface, that sounds pretty good. But that's not actually repentance. Repentance is, whoa, I am so sorry. I've blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. I have misunderstood this. Please tell me how I can be saved. When we see somebody repent in the book of Acts and in the Gospels, the response is usually a person is cut to the heart and they say, what must I do to be saved? That's not what this guy is saying. He's saying, hey, would you pray to God that the consequences of my choices would not happen to me? Just you pray to God that, that he wouldn't be mad at me for doing this thing. Because see, he still hasn't changed. He still hasn't changed. That pernicious view of the Holy Spirit is still there within him. That false doctrine is still in control of him. Brothers and sisters, false doctrine is going to become the bane of the early church. It's going to dog Peter and Paul and James as they go out into the world, as they come into contact with different ways of understanding and believing the world. People are going to come into contact with the gospel and they're going to misunderstand it. They're going to come to all kinds of different, weird, interesting conclusions that don't bear any reality. And those false doctrines will begin to poison the church. Brothers and sisters, what we need to understand is that false doctrine is incredibly destructive to the church and it has to be confronted. It has to be confronted lovingly, it has to be confronted directly, and it has to be confronted immediately. A wise person that I knew once told me, bad news doesn't get better with time. And heresy, bad doctrine, and rebellion do not repair themselves because they are conditions of a broken heart and a bad relationship with God. Now we see two distinctly different bad doctrines here. We see a misunderstanding of the Holy Spirit and we see an idea that perhaps the Samaritans could be Christian on their own outside of the kingdom of God. The apostles deal with both of these ideas in a little bit different ways. The second, they deal with gently by going up and interacting with the Samaritans by inviting them back into the body. The first, though, the misunderstanding of the Holy Spirit and the desire to tear things apart is dealt with through direct confrontation. And brothers and sisters, we live in a world filled with false doctrine. We live in a world where Christianity is constantly being distracted by false doctrine. Some of these false doctrines are really easy for us to see. You can drive down the street, you can go, actually if you go down Blanco, you'll see a big Mormon temple on a hill. It's right across from a great fajita place. Okay, So I go see it a lot because I like fajitas. Mormonism, Islam, Eastern mysticism, these are all false doctrines, false gospels. They're easy to pick out. They're easy for us to, to look the other way from. Some of the false doctrines that we run into, though, are not so easy for us to deal with. Some of the false doctrines that we interact with are things like antinomianism, the idea that the law no longer applies, 
And that we can just do kind of whatever we want to do. That Jesus is a hippie in a bathrobe and wants everybody to be excited and happy. That he just wants you to live your best life now. And he doesn't want to place any restrictions on you. Some of the false doctrines that we see go the other direction. They're an angry legalism that says that as Christians, our job is to check a bunch of boxes and follow a bunch of rules. Regardless of where they exist on the spectrum, each of these is destructive to the spread of the gospel and the health of the church, and all of them have to be confronted. And if we're honest with ourselves, we'll realize that that's not something that we're comfortable with. See, most of us are not comfortable with confrontation. Most of us just want to live out our Christian life, and we want Christianity to be about niceness. We just want to be nice to each other. We want to be liked by the people around us. We want to be seen as nice people, and we want to kind of like live out our life in harmony with the people around us. Unfortunately, that option isn't afforded to us. We are called upon as Christians to discern and then to act. Now, I want to be very clear here. Somebody's going to come up to me after this service and say, but I thought that we weren't supposed to judge. I thought that judge not lest ye be judged. I thought that that we were supposed to just be at peace with everyone. But we need to understand that judgment and discernment are two completely different things. We are not called to judge our fellow man. We're not called to condemn them. But we are called to understand what is true and what is false. And when we come into contact with lies and falsity, it is our duty to call out the lies. We find lies all over the place. We find lies in false doctrine. We find lies in gossip. We find lies in interpersonal conflict. And when we come into contact with lies, it is our duty as Christians to call them what they are. So that the kingdom of God can continue to move forward. Brothers and sisters, I need you to understand this. This is not about being the truth police. It's not about being oppressive to other people. It is about bearing one another's burdens and caring for the people around us. Bad doctrine. Lies. Destroy the church. We have a long history of what happened with Simon the magician after he left Philip and Peter and John. See, Simon the magician didn't repent. Simon the magician just got himself a better gig. As we read through the church fathers, we find out that Simon the magician left Samaria. It's kind of a backwater anyway. Because see, he got a better set of stuff to work with now. He moved to Rome. And he started telling everybody that he was the third part of the Trinity. That he was the Holy Spirit. He redeemed a, uh, a woman from slavery and brought her along with him. 
said that she was the first person that he had resurrected from the dead. And he created this set of beliefs that would later become Gnosticism. And for any of you who know church history, you will know that Gnosticism tortured the early church, broke up the early church, caused huge amounts of conflicts within the early church. He developed a group of people around him that worshipped him like a god. There was a statue to him in Rome dedicated to the worship of Simon the Magician. Now ultimately he's going to come to a bad end. He's going to begin to believe the lies that he's telling people. He's going to tell his followers to bury him in a tomb and that three days he'll rise from the dead. He didn't make it. But his beliefs continued to spread. And they dogged the church. Lies always tear apart the church. There are no innocent lies. There are no lies that you can hide from. All of us are called to the hard duty of confronting them and moving beyond them. Because at the end of the day, the real victim in this is Simon the Magician. Simon the Magician came into contact with the gospel and it never bore fruit in his life. Simon the Magician came into contact with the gospel and it did not change him. And that means that when his followers piled rocks on top of him expecting him to rise from the grave, he died and went to an eternity of godless hell. Brothers and sisters, we must confront bad doctrine and lies because the people that spread bad doctrine and lies are desperately in danger of losing their soul. And it's our duty to call on them for repentance. Brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit is not magic. It is the power of God manifested in the gospel for the changing of even the lives of the most hardened sinner. And so as we come into contact with lies, as we come into contact with bad doctrine and falsity, we must have the faith to believe that God can change all people. That even as we combat lies and even as we combat false doctrine, that we know that God can move in the lives and can change the hearts of the people. In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. Some of you believe lies. Some of you have been raised to believe in doctrines other than what we see in Scripture. Some of you have been raised in Mormon homes or Jehovah's Witness homes by good, well-meaning parents who loved you. And I'm begging you this morning, get to know the real Jesus. I'm begging you this morning to come forward and to inquire about who Christ really is and what He really did. We serve a true God. And the truth of the gospel has power. It had power in Samaria and it has power here. It is the power to be able to heal you and transform you and to free you from the lies that you have believed.
But that healing and that transformation begins when you step towards God. And so this morning, as we have our time of invitation, I would ask you to come forward, that we could pray with you, that we could help you to understand where the lies are. Maybe you're, you are saved, and maybe you just, you've never been a part of a church, or you're not a part of a church now. I would encourage you to come forward. We are not a perfect church, right? You hear me say that every Sunday. Right? That's because we're not a perfect church. Okay? But we are a church that is dedicated to the truth of the gospel. We are a place that you can go and you can grow and you can learn. Please come forward and join us as we move forward in that. Maybe you're just here and you're hurting. Maybe you need the truth of God's ability to overcome all things to transform your life. If you are, come forward so that we can pray for you, regardless of what the reason is, regardless of why. As we come to the Lord, and as we sing our song of invitation, I would ask you to come forward. Please stand with me as we pray. Thanks for listening to this sermon, part of the teaching ministry at Oak Ridge Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about Oak Ridge, you can go to www.orbcnet.com.